Martin. Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. Who's doing the intro? You can make Jeremy do it. No, that's mean. Uh, Welcome to Publishing Radio. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I'm not your host. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I guess just... welcome to, to Publish. Oh, sorry. Go for it. Nope. Nope. Oh, damn it. Oh. Okay, <laughs> welcome to Publishing gotcha. Radio <laughs> Season 2. We are back after what feels like a very short break, but it's probably quite long. And we are kind of approaching season two this year, I think, with a view towards author empowerment. It's, it's just like a theme running through our episodes because I think, you know, we don't ever want to lose sight of the reality of publishing and, and what it's like for authors and particularly people who are not at the celebrity status of side of things. But we do want to look at, you know, what can, what are the things people are doing to make their careers work if they can? What is in your control? Because sometimes things are and we're, we're actually going to kick off the, the start of season one with a sort of return guest JT Greathouse uh, who we know is Jeremy because although JT has been on episode two with us before secrets of books the secret world of book selling he didn't really have a much of a chance to talk which was fine we, we were focusing on his, his bookseller friends um, but also because particularly I, I wanted to open with a situation JT's in, which I think a lot of authors will find useful, which is that he's got a book deal from one side of the Atlantic, but not the other, and is in a unique position where his book is sort of partially self-pubbed in the States, but trad-pubbed in the UK. And also just being a bookseller, he's got a lot of knowledge of what, what's involved and how to actually get your books into stores. And that's useful for small press and indie folks as well, if, if they're still listening in. So feel free to introduce yourself, Jeremy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me back in my capacity as a writer this time, as opposed to as a bookseller. Yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a fantasy author. My first book came out in 2021, The Hand of the Sun King, first book in the Pact and Pattern trilogy, which is now complete with The Garden of Empire and The Pattern of the World and eligible for the Hugo Award for Best Series, I would be remiss not to mention. And as Sunny said, I Ended up with a deal in the UK with Galantz, so a fairly major science fiction publisher on that side of the pond. But then uh, my, despite our best efforts, my uh, agent was unable to secure a deal in the United States. So what we decided to do was self-publish, sort of air quotes. I'm not really doing it. My agency is handling 90% of the logistics of self-publishing for me. And then I'm, you know, but I still own the copyright and I still own all of that and have to deal with Amazon to some extent and deal with 
Ingram iPage for distributing to bookstores and all of those delightful things that come with doing a business by yourself. Beyond that, you know, I've had some short fiction published in a few places. I've been writing for like longer than you probably think if you are familiar with my novels. I think I had my first published story in like 2006, 17, 2017, 2018. But anyway, that's me. I'm also a teacher and I work part-time at a bookstore because I can't get, stop having a 40% discount on books. It would destroy my finances. <laughs> so, Jeremy, you know, you've told us a little bit of the story and, and you know the drill. Don't go into more detail than you're comfortable with because, son, you will keep it. But <laughs> <laughs> but I I am curious to hear more of how that went down with your submission to UK and US publishers, whatever you're comfortable sharing with everybody about, you know, what was said and, and why you ended up with a UK deal, but not US. And then I do have questions too about what your numbers look like UK versus US with your different setups. Sure. Yeah. So the story is basically just, we did a, a, a relatively wide submission to you know, the big five, you know, major imprints at the big five publishers. And then in addition to that, some smaller imprints like Solaris. And we also sent to UK only publishers like Galantz um, because my agents, so Jabberwocky, my agency has a, a an interesting attitude towards rights. I think it's not that common anymore for agencies to be very like conservative in what rights they will sell. Um, Jabberwocky likes to have, have the author retain as much control of different language rights and different region rights as possible. So Joshua, my agent's ideal setup is actually one US only publisher, one UK only publisher, just because in his opinion, that's you're, you basically get two shots on goal for the same book, yep. as opposed to one publisher controlling rights on both sides where they may like, if you, if you sell the to tour US, they might sell it or send it to tour UK. They might not. You know, you can sell world rights and still end up effectively only published in one territory. And so, in his, in Joshua's attitude, you want to maximize your possible your your potential in every territory. So, having each publisher control one set of rights is optimal. Um, and so, like when we sold to Galantz, we sold them UK and glo like UK exclusive rights and and global English non exclusive rights. So they can sell the book in other territories in the English language other than the North America, mm -hmm. but like they don't have the exclusive right to do that. So I could theoretically, if I wanted to um, like sell my self published version of it in France in English, if for some reason that were a thing that made any sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the point is like, you know, it's very parceled out in terms of what they can do and what different people can do. So we, we were on submission and we were getting rejections from like Tor and Orbit and everything. And so I was kind of feeling like maybe the book was going to die, which was disappointing. And so I was already kind of thinking about like whether or not I wanted to self-publish it or whether I wanted to just write something else, try again. But then we got a, an offer from Galantz and the offer was fairly modest, but the enthusiasm that my the editor who was offering had for the book was pretty encouraging and like when i saw his sort of his prospectus of like these are the things that i'm going to suggest in the edits and everything it felt like a good fit and so i decided like let's do this and then so jo after that joshua pinged like the three u.s publishers or the three publishers that still had the option to buy u.s rights which were i think saga i remember was one of them solaris was the other one i can't remember who the third one was because it was like a a very small, he was like 
Yeah, I don't remember. But it was a very small publisher. And so Saga came back and was like, give us a week and then we'll let you know if we want to buy it. And the ultimate decision that we heard was like, well, this is good, but we also publish Ken Liu. And so we're very careful about like Asia set fiction that we publish or Asia set fantasy. And then the other two, like we never heard back from after we pinged them. So that that's, you know, it ended up, we had an offer from Galantz and nowhere else. And then the decision to make was, do we like let the Galantz deal happen and then try again in the U.S. Like if the if the Galantz publication takes off, or do we self-publish? And Jabberwocky's got this fairly robust service, sort of service suite that they offer to authors who want to self-publish books. And they had done it with Alieta Bedard before. They'd done it with Ben Aronovich to get some of his UK-only books in the U.S. Before, really? yeah, not like his major releases, yeah. but a couple smaller yeah. things. And so like Joshua kind of laid this out for me of, of here's how this works. We still take our 15% cut on the self-published income, but we handle like cover, we handle, you know, typesetting, we handle negotiating with anyone we need to negotiate with. We make sure that it gets set up on Ingram and Amazon and everywhere that it needs to go, blah, 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 blah. And so I, knowing what I know as a bookseller, this sounded like a much better situation than self-publishing it on my own. Yeah. And I can talk more about why that is maybe in a different section, but the fact that they had already done it, already knew how to do everything and were basically just offering to do it for the cost of like being my agents yeah. was pretty great. So that's what we did. And it's done surprisingly well, actually. Like it's, I'm not, you know, a blockbuster self-published author or anything. But when I was, we just bought a house. And so I had to like game out my finances, my income. Yeah. And I was sort of surprised at how much I actually make from the self-published side of things. It's like, it averages out to like five or $600 a month. Like some months are much higher, some are much lower, but that's like very past. It's not bad at all. Right? Yeah. Um, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough to like indulge some of my less responsible hobbies without feeling very much. <laughs> is that, is that primarily coming from just Amazon or are yeah. you in a lot of bookstores? How does, how does that work? Well, we, so th let's talk about the, how to get in bookstore mm -hmm. thing as a self-published author, because that's actually something I feel like most people have no idea about. Yep. And I, I used to, when I worked full-time at the bookstore, I used to be responsible for helping local authors get their books in the store mm -hmm. and like making sure that we could carry them. And there are basically two ways if you self-publish that you can get a book in a store. You can bring it in yourself on consignment, which will only be a thing at independent bookstores that are very nice and like want to encourage having local author books in their store. And the way that works is they'll tell you like, we'll take five copies. We'll give, we'll pay you 60% of the cover price on sale and but we won't pay you anything up front. And uh, if they sit on the shelf for six months without selling, we'll return them. And that's like that is not a great system because you know you have to physically transport the books yourself. Mm -hmm. It's a huge pain in the butt, and you have to like keep stock on hand in case they need restock. The other option is you can go through a fulfillment warehouse like Ingram. So if you don't know what Ingram is. You should if you're a writer in the United States. They are the number one book distributor in the country. They are basically a network of warehouses that hold books and then stores can order from them. And they, they have contracts with like every major publisher, most small presses. And if you are a self-published author, you can contract with them as well. And they, the nice thing is they also offer a print-on-demand service. 
where instead of just like having to pay for a print run of your books to then be housed in Ingram's warehouses, you can set it up so that they print as orders come in and then they, they will keep a certain number on hand um, based on like volume of orders. So if they're consistently getting like 30 book order, 30 books ordered a month, they'll keep about 30 on hand at all times. It's not exactly like, like that, that, that's not the exact math, but that's the concept. The benefit of this is now the store can just order your book from Ingram. They don't have to talk to you. You don't have to bring them to the store. But the thing is, unless you are very careful about how your contract with Ingram is set up, no bookstore will order your book because one, the bookstore needs to get their 40% discount, which means that they are only paying you 60% of the cover price for the book. And that's just standard what every bookstore expects so that their profit margins make sense. Very nice stores will go down to like 25% if they know you and like you. And otherwise, or you're doing an event at their store. And otherwise, they just won't because it doesn't make any sense to put a book on the shelf that they're only making that much money for, from, just like financially. And two, it needs to be returnable. Because another thing bookstores can't deal with is having a bunch of books on hand that they can't return that just are locked on the shelf until they sell or they end up just like throwing away. A, a little known fact about the bookselling business is it is a credit and return based business. So the way it works is the store has a credit account with each publisher and with Ingram and any other distributors they work with. And when they order books, those get charged to the credit account. And when they return books, they, they get refunded to the credit account. And so bookstores' financials depend on this enormously. If they had to pay up front for every book that they put on the shelf, they would not be able to put any books on the shelf, right? So if, you, if your book is not returnable, they can't charge it to their credit account. They have to pay for it up front, and, if, and they're stuck with it, right? So when you're setting up your dis distribution with Ingram, you need to make sure of those two things, 40% discount returnable. The downside of this is you make less money on the sales than you would with a smaller discount. But if you have a smaller discount, it won't get on store shelves anyway. So there's basically no point in doing it. And two, if there are a lot of returns, you get stuck with the printing costs, which can happen. So anyway, that's how it all works. The end result of this for me is my local bookstore carries all of my books at a pretty significant level, they push the book for me, but they also know me and I like work there. So it'd be weird if they didn't. <laughs> kind of embarrassing. Don't um, buy his books. He's a bad employee. No, he's a nice guy, but. <laughs> um, but also it's, it's been in a couple Barnes and Nobles. There's like a random store in Connecticut where a friend of mine on the East coast found it. And it's like, I've been able to go to conventions and like I did Grand Rapids comic-con over like in October or no, no, in November. And they had it. And they wouldn't have been able to get it if not for this setup. I would yeah. have had to like schlep the books on an airplane myself. So it's it's great. Like if you're going to self-publish and you want to sell physical copies of your book in any way other than like through your own website or Kickstarter or something, I think you need to make sure that you have that kind of a setup where you are able to have bookstores and booksellers order the books through a, a distributor that they already work with that they can charge on credit. So I, I actually wrote down three questions throughout that, if that's okay. And it's because otherwise yeah. I'll forget them while listening to the answers. The first one is I read an article ages ago on Rider Aware on the difference between Ingram as distributor and Ingram as a warehouse, uh, mm. where she was basically saying that, you know, uh, so a lot of a lot of people who self-pub and a lot of smaller presses that are kind of new and finding their feet, they'll, they'll say, oh, we're with Ingram. But what they mean is mm -hmm. that your book is like in a catalog. 
um, and that this is different from Ingram working for you as a distributor and actually pushing the book. Is that does that make any kind of sense, or can you explain yeah, that a bit more? That does kind of make sense. I so I don't know that much about that part of it because mm -hmm. I didn't actually do the negotiating and I didn't actually set up the arrangement with Ingram. But from the bookseller side, there is a distinction between like, this is a book that I can get from Ingram slash this is a book that is like distributed by Ingram. Um, and it's really the distinction. But so like, so there's, there's this other sort of subsidiary of Ingram called Ingram. Um, In, I think it's In Ingram Publisher Services or Ingram, Ingram Author Services. Or it's one of those two. And that's what I have a deal with. And that is where they are distributing for you. Mm. So it's not just like You're the arrangement that they have. <laughs> yeah. So like the other hand is like the arrangement that they have with um, Penguin, Penguin Random House is they are not a distributor for Penguin Random House. What they are is they're like a centralized location where they, they hold copies of Penguin Random House's books and then you can order them from Ingram. But Penguin Random House has their own distribution system, their own catalog, their own reps, etc. So if Ingram is your distributor, you go in like in Ingram's list of new releases um, and stuff like that. But I, I didn't pay a ton of attention to that part of it, again, because my agency handled it for me. But I do know that it's through IPS. It is, or yeah, it is, it's Ingram Publication Services or Ingram Publisher Services. So you can choose when you go, like, when you, if you're approaching Ingram, say, a self-pub or indie or small press or mm -hmm. something, can you specify what you want to, to be with them? Because my understanding is, like, to get them to distribute you properly, they need to really be making a fair amount of money off you usually. Um, but um, in order for you, yeah, I think in order to go into their catalog and like have their sales reps push your book, mm -hmm. they need to feel like it's going to be profitable. I don't think they do that for me, but they do like I, I'm through their distribution network because that's the only way to have them print your books for you, yeah. as I understand it. Um, so I, I, I again, I, I wish I did know exactly how that all hashed out, but since my agency did it for me, um, I don't as again, though, I think if you're going to work with them, you should talk to them about your options and make sure that you know what you're signing up for and what the deal is going to be. Yeah. Um, Cause one of the, the, one of the thing reservations that I have with, with some small presses, not in terms of their ethics or how they work, but it's just on mm -hmm. the distribution side is that you, you will get presses that say, well, we, we distribute through Ingram. And I think, but, unless you have the right kind of distribution through Ingram, that's not actually any different than what you can do yourself for self-pub. And, and that for me is like an issue. Like if I were considering a small press, it would come down to, do they have what, what I would consider to be more helpful distribution basically. Um, and yeah. I guess off the back of that, Oh, sorry, go on. Well, I was going to say the, the upside, regardless of whether they're officially distributed through Ingram's mm. catalog or just warehoused in Ingram, as long as they have the right terms, in terms of, you know, 40% discount returnable, that is better than doing it on your own just because bookstores already have an account with Ingram, already order from Ingram. Whereas if you're doing it on your own and you are the one mailing the books to the bookstores, they don't have an account with you. They don't know who you are. They're going to, they might take it on consignment if they're really nice. But then again, you have to deal with the logistics of getting the books to the store, potentially taking the books back if they need to return them, tracking down invoices, blah, 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 right? Small presses are kind of a different thing than what I'm doing, where in yeah. effect, I am self-publishing, Jabberwocky is handling 
like the uh, paperwork side of things, more or less. And then Ingram is the place that carries the books that stores okay. can order from. So I think there are a few different terms. I actually just looked up Ingram's different services from their their content group. So there's a there's a whole bunch of different pieces here, and I think we're talking about maybe uh, talking about a, a couple things as if they are one and, and the, the same yeah i want to lead i, I yeah. want to walk through it just so i i understand it and you can correct me if i'm wrong sure. so what we've talked about so far is ingram handles your actual production right so book printing mm-hmm. sounds like there's content prep and, and that kind of thing that uh jabberwocky is doing for you which is pretty freaking mm-hmm. awesome by the way i'm a fan uh of them offering <laughs> that and and how it turned out because i mean like the the copy copies of your books i got uh, here in the U.S., they were they were great. And then there's inventory management, right? And so that's that we talked about yeah. a, actually warehousing books. And obviously, mm-hmm. for with a print-on-demand setup, that's not as much of a thing. But for uh, traditional publishers um, and anybody printing in lots, they're doing that because they, you know, obviously they get a better price on printing a, a large lot at once. But then you have to have somewhere to store it. So that's typically known as third-party logistics, where there there will be a and this ha, this is this exists in a, a bunch of different um, industries. And I used to actually work for a, a company that had a three PL arm and helped set that up. So third-party logistics is where they'll actually warehouse it and ship it out for you. And I think what worked with the the industry term for shipping shit somewhere is usually distribution, <laughs> right? And, and so yes, that's exactly. like, that's not just we will hold it on our shelf, but we have the capability to, to send it to different places and they can send it right. to us and we make that possible slash easy. Yeah. And then there's sales and marketing, which I think Sunyi mm-hmm. maybe is more what you were talking about that small presses aren't set up to do and they probably aren't getting from Ingram and it does look like Ingram, and there used to be somebody besides Ingram, right? Like something with a B, Baker, something. Anyway, but anyway, so sales and marketing, it does look like Ingram offers sales and marketing, which surprises me because every large publisher I've heard of, and what we heard, Jeremy, from uh, your friends at Auntie's Bookstore, is that the really influential people are sales reps directly from publishers right publishing houses Mm -hmm. exactly that is correct but i think but i know that ingram has a sales rep and ingram has a catalog i don't i'm not in it i don't know how you get in it i presume that you hire them to do your sales and marketing for you yeah um on the writer aware website they said they they you basically they have to be making about 25 grand off you kind of (laughs) like basically a bigger company um, bearing in mind that article is about 10 years out of date now, um, although it's still worth a read. So I'll, I'll put a so link to it in show notes. Probably 50 now. Yeah, so I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that much about the hiring Ingram to do that sales and marketing stuff for you angle. Like when, as far as my marketing, the book in the U S goes similarly to how they helped me with the logistics of self-publishing Jabberwocky also will occasionally like track down, you know, uh, there's a newsletter that goes out to like this demographic that we think would be a good place to put an ad for your book. Or um, they like, we did some experiments with like Facebook ads and Twitter ads and stuff. And that all comes out of disbursements. So like they charge me for it. Um, but 
it's so far everything we've done has paid for itself i don't know that anything we've done has like moved the needle significantly enough for me to say like oh yeah facebook ads are great <laughs> they worked okay but like um they do all that stuff for me i don't i haven't hired out any sales or marketing services to ingram but the just having your books in their warehouse so that bookstores can order them that's the service ingram provides that i think self-published people benefit from enormously. the reason i wanted to clarify that is, is because i think it's awesome right for you and anybody else who's who's self-publishing or whatever you want to call it right different variations to have that available to produce your book to get it somewhere that bookstores can order it sounds like obviously you have the inside track on on what kind of terms you have to set up to make that viable for for bookstores but the next step and where i think publishers really own the business is in that sales and marketing and convincing bookstores to get your book on shelves and then sell them right yeah absolutely and yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to go into that. So it sounds like Sonia has a question. Uh, I'd love to go into that after she asks her question. But one thing I want to, <laughs> sorry, sorry. One, one thing no, I want to point out, one thing I want to point out there or, or, or maybe uh, just bring up is that is the hard part because there is that human element, but also because there are so many people to convince right i don't know exactly how many indie bookstores there are that carry genre fiction but i i have in my possession a list of about 200 of them nationwide in the u.s and i just googled it and the internet says that there are 592 barnes and noble retail locations in the u.s so between those two there are you know 800 some odd bookstores that you'd have to sell into as either obviously mm -hmm. a publisher or as an indie and selling into 800 bookstores that you then have to convince to not just put it on the shelf, but to sell it and convince 800 plus humans, uh, maybe in the thousands of humans, that this is a, a book out of all the thousands of other books that they have on their shelves that they should pay attention to. That's th the difficult part. Yes, that is absolutely the difficult part. But let's let's have Sunny's question. <laughs> yeah, and I sorry. Can talk about that a little it, bit. I'm not sure. Oh, I feel, all that build up now. Basically, <laughs> so when I, I I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on small presses because I'm not. It's just that my priorities are aligned with protecting authors over businesses, and and small mm. presses are businesses, and statistically, um, a lot of the very small ones do fold. Um, I've had friends who've lost their IP and stuff from bad contracts yeah. and small presses folding. But one one thing that always kind of gives me a bit of a red flag is when I see places that say, oh, we give 75% royalties to authors or 55% of print. And I always think, surely that means they have no distribution. And I'm just curious what goes through your mind, Jeremy, when you, when you see that, or if you have a better perspective on that, uh, those very high royalty print presses. <sighs> Yeah, I don't think those are much better than self-publishing. Um, so I think they are probably worse for you financially, but there are different reasons people want to publish, right? So, and I've I've definitely developed this perspective through working with local authors at an independent bookstore. A lot of people 
want a book to make money, right? I want to publish a book and I would like to be paid for it. That is a significant number of people. But there's, I think, an equally significant number of people who have an idea for a book and they want to write it and they want it to be a thing that exists in the world and is like available to their friends and family and lends them perhaps a little bit of social prestige. And I think everybody has both of those motivations, but it's like a sliding scale, which one is more important to you than the other. And a lot of those like high royalty, small press contracts don't really exist to make anybody money. They really exist to put out books that then create that like element of social prestige for someone, which you is diff is not the same as self publishing. Mm -hmm. If you self publish your book, like some people will think that's cool, but it's very different from saying like, "Oh, my book is being published by so and so press," right? And then this is actually a thing that matters a lot if you are like a, a college professor who is a poet who is, needs publication contracts as part of your tenure or as part of like your pay scale or whatever. And there are many, 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 um, there are many, many, many very small publishers that do not make any money really that do not make the authors any money that mostly publish poetry so that MFA poets can have their career. Like, like that, that's just a thing. And we've, we've encountered much of this, this at the bookstore, like lots and lots of people come into the store and they're like, Oh, this is my poetry book. And it's cool. And we'll carry it because they're local, but nobody's making any money off of that book. No, that that's fair. And I guess, I guess my only concern with it is when I see people say stuff online, like, Oh, this press offers like 60% royalties, not like yeah. big presses who are just greedy and choose not to. And I always think, sure. Uh, it's a I'm wild not, misunderstanding yeah. of the business, yeah. right? And it's it represents a failure to recognize the value that those big publishers are bringing to the table mm -hmm. and why they need, well, need, they don't need to, but why they will take, you know, 75 to 90% of the profit that comes in from the book because they are doing a lot if they're yeah. doing a good job. I mean, I do, I do think they're greedy, just not, not in like, they don't yeah. set the, the price for distribution. I think the greediness comes in, in other things with stingy contract clauses or low <laughs> advances or things sure. like that. So yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I am not, I'm the last person who will like rise to the defense of corporations, but I am also very realistic in the sense that like they, they exist to make money, right? Like, like Tor, Galance, Orbit, these are businesses that exist to make money as part of much larger, vast empires of businesses that exist to make money. And they don't care about you. They care about how much money they can make from you. Small presses might actually care about you. Mm -hmm. that, is a, that is a fact. However, they don't exist to make money. In, in, a, in a very, and insofar as they do exist to make money, it's at a much smaller scale and in a much, much less like efficient way than the big presses. So if you're signing a small press contract, even if it's like a good small press, like there are like Grey Wolf Press is a small press that does great. And like those authors do well for small press authors, you are necessarily signing on to a much smaller partner than like literally than one of the big presses. Yep. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'm waiting on, on Scott to carry. I, um, I, I was waiting on you because I, I feel like I've been talking a lot. But so so go ahead. Then. I'll, I'll I always feel like sometime. I'm. 
I always feel like I've been talking a lot. Um, I guess this is this is a disconnected question. I might have to move it. Do you happen to know what good pre-sale numbers look like for a book? <laughs> I mean, if it's your debut novel and you get five thousand pre-orders, you're killing it. Yeah. Um, if you're if it's your sixth novel and you've been a front lister the whole time and you're still only getting five thousand pre-orders, your publisher probably wishes you were doing better mm -hmm. than you are, right? Okay. It, it varies a lot depending on where you are in your career, what the publisher's expectations for the book are, blah, blah, blah. Um, and again, and like it depends on is it US or UK? UK is obviously going to be smaller because it's a smaller market. Um, US is, if it's both, then it's going to be a bigger number than if it's just one or the other. Um, but generally, if you like think about it in terms of your advance, it's pretty easy to figure out if you're falling apart or not so if you mm. for every thousand dollars of advance money you got you probably want about a hundred pre-orders to like hit a good amount of money coming in before the book comes out um and that's like not hard math but that is a vibe check so like if you get a hundred thousand you want a thousand pre-orders or something yeah like like okay. at least and if you get yeah. less than that you're falling apart and more is better, right? Okay. Um, but like, you don't need to be that worried about it. And I'm talking about debuts right now. Yeah. Like, you don't need to be worried about it if you're not getting a ton of pre-orders for a debut novel, um, unless you were like given a massive contract and they are throwing tons and tons of marketing weight behind it and it's not moving the needle. Like, if they're if they've if they gave you a two hundred thousand dollar advance for one book and have spent you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on pushing it and you have a thousand pre-orders or even 2000 pre-orders that's not ROI that makes the publisher happy and they and and but like there are so many books that don't take off immediately this is a thing that bothers me about the internet like I feel like the book community online is very very obsessed with the like brand new release book that just came out but there are a lot a lot a lot of books that don't rocket to the top of the charts on release that mm -hmm. take a while for word of mouth to build and then they become massive like um daisy jones and the six is a good example of this not that big when it came out like pretty big but not like as big as it became or another one would be where the crawdads sing which was uh, in hardback on the bestseller list for like two years <laughs> but it wasn't like an instant uh, massive success mm -hmm. i think it might have been an instant bestseller but it wasn't to the degree that it became mm -hmm. so like Books build. If if a if a good book hits a sort of critical mass of people reading it, then you get word of mouth. Then you get people going into the bookstore looking for it. Um, which, like having worked at a bookstore, you know a book is taking off when a couple weeks after release, tons of people are coming in to check to see if you still have copies. Right. That's really interesting. The counterpoint to that, and maybe it's just you know that the the book doesn't find an audience, and that would have happened anyway. Um, but the counterpoint to that is if a book really just lands on shelves, never goes anywhere, never uh, sells a, a significant amount up front, it really does have a pretty short lifespan where it can live on that shelf and have a chance to do that, right? Like you you have to hit a, a, first, um... a first level of you're staying on shelves for long enough to get that build. Most stores will will leave something on shelves for six months. Yeah. Um, and 
it's it, they only will delist something if it's been on shelves for six months and sold zero copies. Yeah. Like it's really it's not that hard to have one copy of your book on a bookstore shelf for like a couple of years. I think that again the the perception we have as people who are perhaps too online is that unless people are talking about something constantly, nobody's talking about it. But it, but a lot of like community around books doesn't exist on the internet. It exists at like library events. It exists at bookstores. It exists at like, like literally book clubs. And there's an enormous amount of invisible word of mouth, right? And yeah, if your book comes out and doesn't do anything and sits on shelves for six months and doesn't sell any copies, it'll die. That'll happen. But similarly, your book can come out and not sell very much for a couple of months, but then maybe like a handful of people uh, read it for a book club and really like it and tell all their friends. And suddenly it's like a hot book in that city, right? Like, and this, this can happen. And I think the, the myth of the instant bestseller is a myth. Like the myth that being an instant bestseller is the only way to have publishing success is very damaging to to debut authors psychologically. Yeah. Because everybody's constantly worried about like, oh my God, is my book going to, am I getting enough pre-orders? Uh, were my first week sales numbers high enough? Did I hit the Sunday Times bestseller list? And if those things are going well for you, that's awesome. Those are good signs. But you're not doomed to failure because you didn't like hit the top 1% of book sales the week that your book came out. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's not as much of a all or nothing situation as I think many of us believe we should be sounding real hopeful in episode one already um i was just curious just <laughs> <laughs> very briefly actually you know coming back you talk about books building and stuff did you ever consider sitting on your american rights and waiting out and see if it offers came i, I know that there was um a, a uk book here that did very well called god killer it, it only had a yeah. uk deal and and um hannah's book did fantastically and then got picked up in the states and now it's kind of taken off a bit which is really lovely to see because she's a, a fantastic author and a lovely person but was that a calculation for you <laughs> i did think about that as an option and i think i i would have done that if i had a stronger sense that my book was going to be like the front list title from galance mm. for the month that it came out but it, i did not get that sense and so i didn't think that it was going to be that kind of a situation. And lo and behold, it wasn't. So like the book came out and it did fine. Like I got another contract with Galantz. So they were, they're happy with how the trilogy did, but it wasn't like it didn't hit any bestseller lists or really like do that well. It did okay. Right. And I don't think at any point we had sufficient leverage to like go to a U.S. publisher who had already considered it and rejected it and be like, well, look how well it's doing. You should publish this now. That kind of thing is like, I, I sounded very hopeful a minute ago. Now it's time for me to sound a little bit a bit pessimistic. <laughs> books build, but not that many books build. It's, it's not that many more than bust out the gate like at Mach 10, right? Mm. It's a... There are multiple pathways to success, but the fact of the matter still is 90% of books come out and die and like disappear forever. There are just so many books published. There's nowhere near enough readership. There's nowhere near enough attention for the majority of books to succeed. So like the calculation on my mind, in my mind was like, well, my book's coming out. I would like it to be available at the bookstore where I work 
and because that would be cool like that's like a lifelong dream kind of thing i have no guarantee i will ever get another book deal and it does not seem to me that this is being positioned to be a big enough success for like me to have leverage on a u.s deal in the future so i'm going to self-publish it and try to ride the glance marketing online as much as i can and have it come out at the same time as the glance one and that worked out okay you know mm. so yeah i think that's that's really smart and, and I think what what I was thinking the the whole time you're going through your whole books can build thing is I I agree but I do think that even in the event that you're one of those as you mentioned fairly few that does build success I think that the level you launch at and that is primarily determined by your publisher right or you, if you're self uh, self published, if you put a ton of money and effort into to building your your debut or your launch of any book, I suppose that kind of does determine your level. And I feel this is just my perception. I don't have any data to back this, but my perception is that that sets your level, and you kind of grow within that tier. And it it's even harder to grow outside of of that tier of success, right? Um, I don't. <sighs> I don't know that I want to describe it in terms of tiers. Yeah. I think I would I would describe it as like there is a there is a pyramid that is very narrow at the top and very wide at the base. Yeah. And uh, depending on where you start at on that pyramid in terms of who your publisher Maybe. is and what your advance was and how much the initial marketing spend was, like that sets your initial position on the pyramid and then you have to work your way the rest of the way up if you want to get a you just literally described tears <laughs> but it's not it's not tears in the sense that it's not like discrete section if, if if i had to describe tears without saying the word tear that would be my description like <laughs> whatever scott what i think maybe we have different understandings of the meaning of the word tier when i think of tiers i'm thinking of discrete sections that are stacked on top of each you, other you've seen a right? pyramid right like a cake <laughs> like a cake yes I mean. what do they call the different levels of, of that cake pyramids are smooth Scott. are they all though yes you're saying it's mind, more of a gradient have, and yes it's more of a gradient <laughs> And, and I think the reason I don't want to use the word tears is in my mind, it has like an implication that there's a point at which it gets harder to continue moving up. Like, oh, I've hit the ceiling of my tier and I can't get beyond that point. Or like, it'll be harder to get beyond that point. And I think it's literally just you start at a certain position and then it's equally hard to move up from where you start, no matter where you start. But the closer to this top you start, the easier it is to get to the pinnacle, right? So anyway, whatever, semantic nonsense. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I think where you start matters. It's not impossible to grow, but the further down you start, the harder it is to grow. Completely agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, killing me, Jeremy. Okay, so. Uh... Precision of language. Scott. Well, okay. If that's, if that's what you want to call it. Yes. Uh, so I think we went a little bit into this with your bookstore buds. But is it worth talking about what a, I, I don't know if I want to even say best selling, but like an effective 
early or debut book launch looks like in terms of convincing bookstore folks to put effort into your book? Or did we, do you think we covered that well enough in that previous episode? I think we covered it pretty well, but if you know, you're listening and you're, you didn't listen to season one, episode two or two. three or whatever it was yeah. two of publishing rodeo, you should go listen to that. Cause Carrie and um, Claire actually do book ordering. <laughs> um, and so they are the people that are, the publishers are trying to convince to yeah. order books to the store. And they definitely have a lot of thoughts about like what works and what doesn't. I would say like in general, some of the gimmicky things that publishers do don't have any impact. Like we get sent boxes of like cologne or random shit all the time. <laughs> and, and it's like, why are you sending us this? We don't care about this. Yeah. And they're never very good. You tested them out. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't? We wouldn't. Yeah. If they were great, maybe we would have ordered more copies of the book. But, um, but you know, and you see stuff like that on social media all the time of, authors being like oh my god i'm so excited that my arcs are being sent out with like this care package of random crap that the booksellers might want but we don't want that and it's usually not very high quality and it's a waste of time the thing that the thing that really and again carrie and claire better people to talk about this than me but the thing that seems to work the best from my perspective is just the enthusiasm of the sales team like if the and the reason for that is not necessarily because it indicates that the book is good. It indicates that the sales team is excited about it and are talking about it all the time, which means it's going to be pushed consistently all over the place. And it's going to have a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. But the people ordering books at bookstores are not, they are somewhat concerned with, do I think this book is cool? They are more concerned with, does this feel like a book the publisher is going to spend a lot of effort and energy selling? Yep. Because then we can piggyback on that. We don't have to sell it if they are selling it. We just have to carry it, right? Which is why marketing plans and things are so prominently placed in Edelweiss and wherever else you order shit mm -hmm. from and get info on up front. Because, yeah, yeah I, I heard the same thing from, God, who was it? Daniel, Daniel Roman uh, from mm -hmm. Winter is Coming, that they review popular books and books that uh, you know, they can tell a publisher is going to put a lot behind for the same reason. They get a lot more traffic if they cover something that everybody else is covering and that's getting yeah. a lot of traffic elsewhere uh, versus trying to uh, be the one outlet that's covering a certain thing that they think is really cool, right? Right. The, the knock-on effect of, like, something already having a lot of attention means that the work you have to do to get a customer to buy it is much lower. Yep. So if something's already got a lot of attention, it's going to be easier to sell. We're more likely to carry a bunch of copies of it. Yep. So totally makes sense. This, this is obviously um, a vicious cycle if you don't get a lot of hype. Mm -hmm. Right. So that is, I think why there is some justification to people being nervous about like, what's my marketing spend going to look like or whatever. But I also think that we worry about that too much, especially since it's fundamentally out of our control <laughs> once we've signed a contract. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had a, a couple people message me asking, you know, saying, oh, I got this for my advance, relatively low for my genre. What can I do to make my publisher give me like basically a lead nothing. marketing plan? And the answer is, you yeah, can do nothing. nothing. 
and like they're saying oh how do i get this minimum number of arcs it's like you can ask if there are arcs you can (laughs) ask for a minimum number yeah your time to do that was when you were contracting yeah i mean you can but the answer will just be no right you can do do so um go into things you can do yes yeah my black hat (laughs) for a minute here my slightly less than legal perspective you can just send pdfs of your book to people like hmm. the publisher is not going to stop you from doing that so even if it's not an official arc if you have a connection at a bookstore and you're like hey i have a book coming out my publisher is not doing arcs but i have a pdf or an epub are you interested in reading it you can you can do that it's not probably something you should advertise that you are doing to your publisher oh, they probably won't care but they might, and you don't technically have the right to do that. So, <laughs> but like you can do, there are things you can do. Will any of those things have even remotely the same level of impact as your publisher printing 10,000 arcs with three different cover ver- variations? No, absolutely not. But you're not totally powerless. And like, again, if you're, if you're focused on small achievable goals, like I want to get my book in my local bookstore, that's far more achievable on your own than I want to get distributed in all 800 Barnes and Nobles yep. or whatever, or all 500 Barnes and Nobles. Yep. So I've added in a new kind of in section for the podcast this season, where basically I invite people to talk to us about the smallest hill they are willing to die on just for fun and just for interest. And I believe we are going to hear from Jeremy about why Kelvin is the only true temperature measurement that we should use. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you've offered up your platform for the truth, the divine truth, the holy truth, <laughs> that we only need one temperature system, which is Kelvin. Because Kelvin is the only temperature system which accurately represents temperature in terms of movement of subatomic particles, which is what temperature is supposed to measure, right? Zero on the Kelvin scale means there is no movement of subatomic particles, which is only logical. You have zero movement, therefore you have zero as the number, right? And then everything after that is just a a gradient scale of how much movement there is. Now, detractors will say silly things like, well, what matters is the human experience. Maybe, but you can just do that in terms of Kelvin, right? So you could just say like, oh, 273 is pretty comfortable. That's where we are as human beings, right? I think Kelvin gives us a better sense of our place in the universe as just like random animals and not the center of all things. Um, it gives us a better sense of like how hot and cold things actually are in terms of, again, absolute cold. And it helps kids understand physics better because then you don't have to explain to them why there's negative temperature when temperature is supposed to represent how much particles are moving, Right. You're trying to tell a kid, oh, it's negative 100. They're like, how can particles move minus 100? Are they going backwards? What's going on here? <laughs> no, it's just zero. Dark. There's no movement or there is some movement. dark matter. <laughs> there you go. I, I look forward to the United States government reaching out to me for a plan on implementing this very important and necessary change. <laughs> to any baffled listeners, this is like a, a real, I don't know. It's kind of a running joke, but also slightly serious, I think, for, for Jeremy. So It started out as a joke, but the more I lean into the joke, the more I think it's true. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> also, if you're writing science fiction and you're using any temperature scale but Kelvin, you're a silly person. <laughs> I was. In, I oh, was cute. In, Lots of sci-fi writers writing in. <laughs> I was an engineer for, if if you count my college time, which I do for about a decade, 
and many of the calculations we did were in Kelvin for simplicity's yeah. sake. Yeah. Right. Why, why muddy the waters with, you know, weird scales and negative numbers? Yes. Yeah. It, it makes sense. Logically consistent. Yeah. Co-signed. Oh, can we get you to plug yourself, Jeremy, before, before we all call it a night? Yes. Um, so again, I'm JT Greathouse, uh, author of the Pact and Pattern Trilogy, which is again up for the Best Series Hugo Award and will never be up for the Best Series Hugo Award ever again. So if you want to vote for it, <laughs> this is your time. The Hand of the Sun King is the first book in the trilogy. It was nominated for the um, Best Newcomer Award from the British Fantasy Awards and is good. I think it's a good book and I wrote it. And usually authors have the lowest opinion of their work. So that should tell you. Also, Scott liked it. I did. Yeah. That's, that's totally fair. I was I was waiting for my moment. Yeah. I. Truth be told, I like very few books that I read. I, I DNF books all the time, and it's very stressful now. Same that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Jeremy's <laughs> book was not one of them. I, I love his series. If you hear jeremy tell it he will tell you that it's weird and <laughs> and, and super uh unique blah 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 and it is unique and has just enough weirdness to be fun but i think it is one of the better coming of age stories i've read in the last decade um and jeremy's just a really really good writer so i think i would probably read anything he wrote but I would, oh, yeah. That. I would encourage you to check it out and vote for it for whatever award you just talked about. <laughs> <laughs> whatever award he says. I mean, I wasn't even going to mention it till you said that, mm -hmm. but we are technically eligible as well for a Hugo Award, the fan cast. And I'm not saying that because I want to win. I'm saying that because it is actually one of my life's <laughs> ambitions to go to the losers' party. So, if by some miracle people felt magnanimous enough to vote us onto the shortlist but not allow us to win i will be extremely grateful i want to see the famous right. losers party nobody wants to be a winner right that's that's boring um, and then we could and then i can put hugo award losing author on every book from now on so what you're saying is nominate but then do not subsequently vote for publishing rodeo for best fan cast for the hugos yeah vote for someone better <laughs> Oh, I've probably phrased that really badly. I'm off to edit that out, but it's fine. Thank you so much, both you. What a fun one to start off the season. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.